We're in Genesis 39 and 40 today, continuing the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who is also called Israel, the son of Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, two of which feature prominently in these last uh, remaining chapters, the, the, the last 14 chapters. It spans from 37 to 50, and that ends the book of Genesis. Now, of these two sons, one of them is Judah, who took up all of chapter 38, uh, and that's everything that happens to him over the course of 22 years. Uh, the other one is Joseph, who will be tracking. Will uh, you know? Will be tracking with them for a few chapters before Judah and Joseph uh, and the other brothers all meet together again. So, what happens to Joseph during these 22 years? A lot, and that's why it t- uh, he takes up more than just one chapter to explain his events. This is a big deal to the author of Genesis. You'd think that Genesis is about the creation of the world or the beginning of sin. When someone asks you, what's Genesis about? That might be your answer. It's about the beginning of of how everything started off and, and came about. You know, it's the creation of the universe, the creation of the world, the beginning of sin. But it's not that. Those are milestones in the author's journey to tell you about the beginning of God's people, namely the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. That's what this book is about. It's about how God set apart from the world a people for himself who will live by faith. And Joseph has a big part in how the nation of Israel comes about and how the sons of Jacob survive. And if you remember, the author only spent one verse on the creation of the universe, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom. Uh, You can say that that, that's a full chapter on really the creation of the world, right? It ends with uh, the creation of of, uh, human beings. And, uh, and then all creation is complete. And yet we have these last 14 chapters of Genesis dedicated just to the story of Joseph. He's a big deal, not because of himself, but because of God. He's a, a leader figure, and uh, he's a savior figure. He's a hero that God's going to raise up to save Israel, which will in some ways connect to Jesus and resemble uh, Jesus to us. He's he's a leader that God raises up to lead the people, which also will resemble Jesus to the world. Uh, And this is the next part in the story of how God raises up this leader, this hero, this guy, Joseph, to bring about his own people. Uh, But before he becomes someone big, he has to become someone small. He gets reduced to his lowest point And that will reveal the man. It will reveal what he's really about, what he really is. As a reminder, this is one story that takes 14 chapters to tell. Last week, uh, we started this off, and it was a setup to get to know Joseph and Judah. And today is not a full story. It's just the next part in this one story. You get that, right? It's, imagine you're watching a movie and you only watch a few scenes each week. You, that wasn't the whole movie. You don't go back and review, you know, what did you think of these scenes the same way as you do the whole movie, right? Uh, this is just a few scenes of the story. That's what's going to happen today. So it's not a full story in and of itself. It's just another part Uh, Last week ended with Joseph being sold into slavery to Egypt by his brothers. And that's where we pick up. And for the next two chapters, he's going to spend a total of the next 13 years in captivity uh, in in two different stages. And that's kind of how we're going to take it. Okay, the first is Joseph the slave. That's chapter 39. And then the second is Joseph the prisoner, which is chapter 40. 
and then we'll land on a conclusion that we'll spend a little bit of time on. Okay, so we'll see him in those two situations, and for both of them, he is, by the way, unquestionably innocent. He did nothing to, to deserve being sold into slavery. That was really by the wickedness of his brothers. He is a victim of injustice, and that will be his, uh, his running motif throughout these two chapters, that he is a victim of injustice. Let's start with Joseph the slave, chapter 39. Verse 1 says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. The Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, Yahweh was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that Yahweh was with him, and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Okay, stop there, right? This is a setup to the story, and you have to ask yourself the question, who is in charge here? Who is in charge here? Who is in control? Joseph is clearly not in charge of his circumstances at the moment. He is a passenger. He is sold into slavery. He's just kind of there. He's doing his thing. Potiphar seems like he's in charge. He's the captain of the guard. He's, uh, he works for, you know, Pharaoh, which is the king of Egypt. But he's only mentioned as uh, Joseph's owner, slave owner. It is God, specifically Yahweh God, who is making everything work for Joseph. Yahweh God, he is the one that's in charge. He's the one that's, that's uh, making things come about and, and causing the story to move forward in the direction it goes. Yahweh was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed. Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had. Now this is very different from how God struck Judah's sons dead in the last chapter, right? Remember Judah had wicked sons and so he, he struck Ur dead, he struck Onan dead, right? He, he struck them dead because they were wicked in the previous chapter. This is different. Here's God coming into, uh, into the, the situation and he's blessing Joseph and he's blessing everything he does, blessing all the work of his hands. Now Potiphar, the captain of the guard, he notices that Joseph is successful at everything. And so he keeps promoting him over every, every different faction of his house. Eventually, he's just in charge of everything except what Potiphar eats. And that implies that Potiphar was, um, he was just a, he was a foodie, right? He cared about what he ate. Uh, and, uh, and that's not important to the story. It's just, it's funny that that's in there. This is an unexpected fulfillment, by the way, of God's promise to Abraham. Remember how God promised Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3. He says, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That would include Egypt. And he says, anyone who blesses you, I'll bless. Anyone who curses you, I'll curse. He says that to Abraham, and that gets passed down to Isaac, and that gets passed down to, to Jacob. And from Jacob, that gets passed down to his kids too, including Joseph. Joseph 
was a blessing to the nation he was in. He was a blessing to Egypt. And because Potiphar was good to him, he also reaped blessings as a, as a fringe benefit, I guess, a side effect, right? He saw Joseph was doing well. God was blessing Joseph. And so Potiphar's like, oh, I want to I wanna take that. I want to elevate that. And because he was good to Joseph, God was good to Potiphar. It was a, it was a good, positive, constructive cycle. Now, that means that this is not the story of the success of Joseph. You have to understand this is rather the story of God's faithfulness to his promises. God is the one making this work, not Joseph. Joseph is, is more a, a passenger, like I said. God is the one who is credited with making this happen. Any Bible study that ends up saying, be like Joseph. If you're good at something, work hard. Good things will happen. Those quote-unquote Bible studies remove God from the picture and pretend that Joseph is the hero of the story. He is not. I mean, he's, he's a good guy, and we're going to talk about how good he is and stuff, but you must keep in mind that it is God who brings the blessing, not Joseph. Okay? The last sentence tells us that Joseph was good-looking, too. He probably... Uh, you know, he, he sported a good look that even though he was uh, a Hebrew, he also, when he comes to Egypt, he gets shaved because they always shave the, the men completely bald everywhere. And then uh, and he might grow a goatee. That might be the, the exception. And then he's dark. Uh, and that would be the Egyptian look. And he was good in form and, and stature and appearance. And so he's walking around and, and, uh, and people are gonna notice this. Potiphar's wife is gonna notice this. And that's the setup for the problem that comes up. Verse seven, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in, in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, this is an odd reversal from what we've seen in Genesis before. If you've been with us in Genesis, you've seen that it was previously multiple occasions where a foreign ruler wanted the wife of the main character, saw that the wife of the main character was gorgeous and said, I want, I want that woman to be my wife. Uh, and you know, so he, he went after her because she was attractive. Now it's the wife of the foreign ruler going after the main character because he's attractive. It's this strange, odd flip-flop of, uh, of the story. The wife of Potiphar wants Joseph, but Joseph resists because he knows it would be wrong. And the reason why it's wrong, he says, is because it would be a great wickedness and a sin against God. That's where his moral compass is derived. He says it's a sin against God. That's, that's really the problem he has with it. As a slave, it would have been normal and acceptable for him to obey Potiphar's wife. That was not uncommon. And so Joseph's resistance here is unusual and unexpected in that society. He had a higher standard of purity and fidelity than society did. It's interesting to me that he uh, specifically tells her it would be a sin against God. Because that shows you that in his mind, 
as it ought to be, and as the author is bringing out to our attention, society does not dictate right and wrong. Culture does not dictate right and wrong. God does. And Joseph is the only one who gets that. Verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house, uh, none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he, my husband, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me. Uh, he came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up Joseph's garment by her until until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, "The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to to laugh at me." But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Verse 19. As soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Stop there. In terms of what the author is doing here, it's a remarkable flip side once again to the same stories. Instead of reminding us of God's faithfulness to keep his promises, now we're getting the emphasis on the human response, right? You have this moment of temptation for Joseph, and instead of God coming in and and resolving the situation, instead of him causing a, a plague of infertility or, or something like that to happen on the household, he, he's strangely absent and you see the human response. You see Joseph's obedience come out. While God is sovereign and all-knowing and all-powerful, people still bear responsibility and accountability for their own actions. We rarely think of that, especially when we're young in our faith. If we think God knows the end, then we have no no freedom of choice or something like that. That's a normal question for us to have. But throughout Genesis, you keep seeing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they fail, and yet God still keeps his promise. God is sovereign, and people still have agency. But with this this character, with Joseph, Joseph doesn't fail. Not like like his his father and and fathers before him. Not not like his father Jacob or his father Isaac or his father Abraham. Right? He doesn't seem to fail in the same way. We, We see the right kind of human response. We see Joseph in a positive light with unquestionable innocence, living with integrity unmatched by his fathers. He gave no reason for Potiphar's wife to advance on him. He didn't lead her on. He didn't flirt with her. He didn't hang out with her because it was okay until things got weird. He gave no reason for Potiphar's wife to advance on him like that. And that was always God's intention. The human contribution is integrated into his action plan, right? Think about this, that uh, that our human response, our choices are integrated into God's sovereignty. In chapter 18, God's talking to his angels before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Uh, and in talking with his angels, this is what he says about his promise to Abraham in chapter 18, verse 19. It says, for I have chosen Abraham that he may con- command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that Yahweh may bring, about to, a- to, may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Right? If you notice what that says, it's the way God says it, the descendants of Abraham have to keep the way of Yahweh so that Yahweh may fulfill his promise. So in this one sense, God is sovereign and cannot be foiled or thwarted or outdone. And yet still, his people must obey for his plan to move forward. There's sovereignty and there's agency. How that reconciles, we don't know. God's people must do God's will so that God's will can be accomplished, that's true. And yet God is sovereign and cannot be thwarted. That's also true. How is this accomplished? Well, we don't don't quite know in the mind of God how he does that. But the Joseph story is going to give balance to the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob stories, which keep showing us the sovereignty of God. The sovereign hand of God is our roadmap, right? We we know that God will bring about what he said. And this story is gonna, is gonna give us the, the other side of it, that we must see human faithfulness. We have to see human obedience as a result of faith. Critical to our understanding of faith is that faith doesn't ensure a good, happy life. Bad things happen, even injustice. Joseph is thrown into prison not because he did something wrong or something that even looked wrong, He only did what was right and he was thrown into prison, right? He suffers because people around him are wicked. People around him are telling lies. People around him hate him, specifically because he was doing something right. Potiphar's wife lashes out at him because he was doing something right. And that gives us a sober warning that even in our righteousness, even in our obedience, suffering can come. Jesus gives us a a good uh, warning on that in John 15 too. Unlike Judah, from the previous chapter, chapter 38, unlike Judah, Joseph is innocent. These are the two prominent sons that we're paying attention to, Judah and Joseph. Judah made mistakes, but Joseph is innocent. And so these brothers are contrasted. And I actually think Potiphar knows something of, Joseph's innocence. I think he knows something's going on. He knows Joseph is trustworthy. He knows Joseph is competent. He probably knows his wife's character or lack thereof. So he probably knows how she's using her words to humiliate him, right? His anger was kindled, but maybe not entirely at Joseph, maybe somewhat at his wife, because did you notice the way she says it? She's like, my husband brought this Hebrew in to make sport of us to laugh at us. So she's blaming the husband and she kind of sounds like Adam back in Genesis three. She's like, the Hebrew that you brought here came in to laugh at me. You know, and she, she starts shifting blame and saying it's you and it's, you know, and she's humiliating her husband in front of the house, in front of all the servants and things. And so he has to act in order to save face for his family, in order to, to uh, in, I guess in some sense, defend his, his honor but his actions are oddly merciful because he could have very easily and very normally executed the slave right then and there. 
no questions asked, no due process, no court system or anything like that. He could just take Joseph and cut his head off. All he has to do is command it. There would be no laws protecting Joseph. If he believed his wife, and if he was really outraged against Joseph, Joseph should be dead. And yet instead, he puts Joseph in the king's prison. That's Pharaoh's prison, right? The, the prison, not that Pharaoh is in, but Pharaoh owns that prison. It's the prison that Pharaoh, okay, you get what I'm saying, right? Pharaoh's prison, which turns out to be Potiphar's house. Okay, remember how Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house, in the house of the captain of the guard, right? Then he throws him in the king's prison, which is also in the house of the captain of the guard, as you'll see in just a few verses. So he just throws him in the basement. That's basically what he does. The king's prison was for political prisoners, not for foreign slaves that were guilty of crimes against their masters. This was a nicer prison. I'm not saying it's the Marriott. You know, it's, it's, it's not like, like Joseph goes down there and there's air conditioning. I'm not saying that it, it's great. Uh, but I, I'm telling you, if Potiphar ignored his... Uh, I'm sorry, if, if Potiphar... If he didn't do anything, then he'd be humiliated. He'd look like a bad husband and it looked like he's bringing in Hebrew slaves to make sport of his wife, etc. So he has to take action against Joseph and he takes the most minimal action possible. He puts him in the prison that's just downstairs. The result of being in the king's prison is that Joseph will meet people who are members of Pharaoh's court and that is going to be by the sovereign hand of God. Now verse 21 says, but Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Yahweh was with him. And whatever he did, Yahweh made it succeed. Now pay attention to this little epilogue to, to the chapter, right? God has used the evil intended against Joseph and still brought about something good. This is the sovereign hand of God, unfoiled, unthwarted, unimpeded by the actions that people chose. God was with Joseph and prospered his way, just as he promised. People intended harm, but God is doing something with that. And he's still able to work all these things for the good of his people. Now, that doesn't mean Joseph's life was easy. Joseph was good. He was, he was moral. He was obedient. And yet, even good people suffer injustice. And so he's in prison. And so we get to Joseph the prisoner, chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. Did you see that? He put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. That's Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh is the captain of, uh, no, sorry, that's Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the captain of the guard, right? He put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. So you have this ongoing story where Joseph, everything he does keeps succeeding and then he's, he's uh, wrongfully accused. He's 
uh, wrongfully thrown into prison, and then everything he does there keeps succeeding, and, uh, and God keeps blessing him, and some time passes. Remember, this, uh, these two chapters will span 13 years, and we don't know how long he was a slave and then how long he was a prisoner. We don't know. Somewhere in there, that happens, okay? But um, here he is, and everything is, uh, is being blessed, uh, and uh, he, you, you get introduced to two characters here. The first is the cupbearer of the king of Egypt, the cupbearer of Pharaoh. He's a chief advisor, sometimes a head of staff. The fact that he's called the chief cupbearer means that he had a staff, right? And uh, the chief cupbearer didn't, he wasn't a butler. He wasn't just a guy who, who brings food and drink to, uh, to the Pharaoh. He was a guy who was uh, consulted for strategies and for, for diplomacy and all that kind of stuff. And he would taste the king's food in order to check for poison. So he, was, he had to be very trusted. He had to be very close to the Pharaoh in order to have this position. He had to be someone that was extremely loyal and vetted out. Nehemiah, by the way, is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the chief cupbearer is then also with the chief baker. The chief baker was actually a high position in the palace. Uh, apparently, Egyptians had over 100 varieties of bread. They, they cared about their bread a lot. The chief baker uh, was a big deal because bread was uh, a main staple of food. And so the chief baker was the guy that prepared food for Pharaoh. And in doing that, he had to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He had to be very, uh, very faithful. He was a chief baker, so he had a staff. So both of these guys are leaders. Both of them have, have uh, underlings, subordinates, and both of them have to be loyal to Pharaoh. Both of them have to, uh, have to make sure that potential assassins don't get to poison the, the king. All right, so they have, to be the, uh, they have to be close guys, and yet for some reason they're in prison. We don't even know why they're in prison. And the reason why they're in prison isn't even important to the story, and so the author just skips that. It doesn't matter. They made Pharaoh mad, they're in prison, that's it. That's all we need to know. Uh, it could be as simple as the uh, Pharaoh might have eaten a meal, and then he got food poisoning, and he might have thought food poisoning was someone actually trying to poison him, and then he could have been like, what, what's going on, you two? And he could have thrown him into prison. It could have been something as simple as that, a misunderstanding. We don't know, but they're in prison. They are in the house of Potiphar, where Joseph is. And it says some time in custody passes. So Joseph has some time to get to know these guys and then to prove his own competence. They see that he's blessed. You know, just like Potiphar saw that Yahweh was with them and the prison warden saw that Yahweh was with them. These guys can see, because some time has passed, that Yahweh is with him. Verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, they both dreamed each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation or its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast? By the way, it says uh, he asked Pharaoh's officers, that's the two of them, the cupbearer and the chief baker, who were with him in custody in his master's house, his slave owner, that's Potiphar, right? He says, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, oh, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. 
Now, remember, dreams in this time were understood to be divine communication, divine messages, message from the gods, message from the heavens, right? If you had a dream that you understand, great. You know what the gods are telling you. If you had a dream that you didn't understand, it would give you anxiety because you could be missing a very important message, like a very important command from the gods. And if you didn't obey the command, you're really in trouble. The Egyptians and most other civilizations had professional interpreters who studied and discerned dreams. Did it work? I doubt it. But the Egyptians, the Babylonians, other peoples, they compiled dream books which contained sample dreams and their meanings. And their meanings would be verified because they would record the dreams and the, and the hypothesized meanings. And then they would record what happened in the person's life after that. And so they would corroborate by, you know, with longitudinal studies and repeated sampling. You could, you'd be able to go, ah, so the meaning of the dream is this. And so they, that, was, uh, that was something of a scientific method that they were using to interpret dreams. And it was important to know what your dreams meant because the gods were telling you something. Don't ignore it. Well, these guys are troubled. They don't understand their dreams, so they tell Joseph what happened, and his, you know, his response is, well, don't interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Which is weird because Joseph doesn't have access to any of these dream books. That would be only for the highest level wise men or magicians. So his only intent is to listen and to see if God reveals the meaning to him. And maybe he asks for, I don't know, he might be asking, like, just tell it to me, because maybe he's going, God has given me dreams also, and I know the meaning of my dreams. My brothers and my parents are going to bow down to me. I will be greater than my brothers. Like, so he's like, God gave me dreams. I know the meaning. So he gave you dreams. Maybe I'll know the meaning of that too. God revealed a dream to me, and I have a relationship with him. I'm kind of part of his chosen people. So that could be it. Or it could just be curiosity because you do that too, right? Your friend's like, oh, I had a dream. You were in it. And you go, what happened? Right? You just ask. So maybe he's just saying, oh, what happened? I don't know. In any case, he says, don't the interpretations belong to God? And he uses the word Elohim, or at least that's what's written down in the Hebrew, Elohim, which can mean God, as in Yahweh God. You know, it could be him. Uh, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth, or it can be plural. Elohim is actually plural, gods. And so Genesis 1-1 actually says, in the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. The only reason why we know it's singular is because the verb is singular. In the beginning, gods, he created the heavens and the earth. So we have, you know, we have absolute certainty that, that there's no polytheism going on in Genesis. But here is Joseph for years in prison, you know, for years in, in uh, slavery and prison in Egypt, did he become polytheistic? It's hard to tell with his, with his grammar. He goes, don't interpretation belong to Elohim? Don't interpretations belong to God? Or don't interpretation belong to gods? And it's hard to tell whether or not he's a believer or not. And yet, as time goes on, I'm just going to give you the spoiler alert, but eventually you'll see that he means singular Elohim God. Right, that he is pointing to Yahweh God. But at this point, when he says it to these guys, maybe they don't know whether or not he's speaking singular or plural. So, you know, it doesn't sound like he's from a different religion. In any case, they tell him the meaning. Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine, there were three branches. 
As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Verse 12. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now that's a good interpretation. In three days, you will be cupbearer again. That's what he says. Pharaoh will lift up your head, meaning like, you know, you're downcast. You're like, oh, and you're looking down. And Pharaoh will lift up your head like, hey, cheer up, right? He'll lift up your head and, uh, and he'll make you cupbearer again. Now that, I feel like if you heard this dream, you could kind of guess that, right? You can, you can guess that. You can go like, oh, okay, I saw vine, three branches, and uh, turns into grapes. I took the grapes, I squeezed them into a cup, and I gave the cup back to Pharaoh. And so Joseph goes, ah, in three, in three days, you're going to be cupbearer to Pharaoh again. That seems like a, a reasonable guess. But coincidentally, Joseph, is, uh, his interpretation is consistent with Egyptian dream books. A full goblet in Egyptian dream books uh, means, uh, or it, it points to the idea of prospering, usually with the idea of children, having lots of children and stuff, but it means prospering. Now, Joseph asks the cupbearer, he, or, or he says, you know, you're going to be cupbearer again. When you go back, please talk to Pharaoh and put in a good word for me. Let him know that I'm not supposed to be here. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm an innocent man. Please tell him to get me out of here. Right? It's true he's being treated nicely in the prison, but it's still prison, Right? He's not free. He's not with his family. He's not really where he belongs. Now, verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Verse 18. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three, bas the three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. That is not a great interpretation to hear. In three days, Pharaoh will hang you. He'll lift up your head. I mean, he's, you know, that sounds like cheer up. But he's saying he'll lift up your head off your body. So it, it, it's, what is it? Is he going to behead him or is he going to hang him on a tree? Because it seems like it's both. Well, that, it, it would be both. Uh, it, hanging, like by a noose, was not a normal custom in, uh, in Egypt. So what they, would, they would behead and then they would take your body and impale it with, with like a spear and then hang it up on a, you know, on a wooden thing, so hang it on a tree. So that's, that's the gruesome way that the baker would die. He would have his head cut off and then he would be impaled and his body left out there for birds and insects to eat for the next course of days. Now, again, coincidentally, Joseph's interpretation is consistent with Egyptian dream books because carrying fruit on your head 
was a sign of sorrow, of bad things to come. I don't think this meaning that, that Joseph gives is as obvious as the cupbearer's dream, right? Joseph's explanation is very specific and very exact, and none of us, I think, could have guessed that meaning with any degree of certainty. And yet he speaks it with confidence. He's absolutely sure that this is what it means. It's not like the, you know, like when you read a horoscope, you know, you're, you're an Aquarius and you read the thing and it says like uh, something good will happen to you this month. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's so true, right? You just read it. It's got all these vague statements. You just read it. Or like all the personality tests, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, whatever. You, you answer hundreds of questions about yourself and then it gives you a paragraph about you and you're like, oh, it's so true. Well, of course you gave it the answers. Right? Of course. It's like it tells you you love people. But you answered that like six times when you took the test. Of course. Right? But we sit there and go, oh my gosh, it's so true. And it's like, wow, what a magic trick. Sorry, I got off on a crusade there. Okay. Joseph, though, he, he starts interpreting this dream and they go, oh, it's so true. Like, it, it must be true, right? But he says it in a way where he could very easily be proven wrong. He could very easily be, like, imagine if you read your, your horoscope and it just said, in three days you will be beheaded and then your body will be hung on a tree. If that didn't happen, the horoscope thing is broken, right? So if Joseph was wrong, then the whole thing where Yahweh God is revealing to him the meaning of dreams, that's broken. And yet Joseph is absolutely certain and he says, this is what's going to happen. And if you remember, Joseph has this record of like reporting dreams without much tact, right? He walks up to his brothers and he's like, hey guys, you're going to bow to me someday, right? And then they're like, we hate you. And he's like, okay. And then he comes back later and he's like, by the way, you guys and mom and dad are going to bow to me someday. Had another dream, right? He doesn't have a whole lot of tact. That gets kind of used here with the baker. He doesn't go like, yeah. In three days, <laughs> you know, he, doesn't, he doesn't just sit there and like get nervous. He just goes, in three days, you're going to have your head cut off, and then you're going to get hanged. And that, just that lack of tact, he just plainly reports it. We don't, we don't get a reaction from the cupbearer, right? It doesn't say that the baker looked at Joseph curiously with the bead of sweat coming down. You don't get any of that, you know? You just... You don't get any re reaction. The author doesn't care because the point is not for us to relate to the cupbearer or the baker. The point is to show you that Joseph has a gift with interpreting dreams, that God not only gives him dreams, but gives him the ability to interpret dreams. That's what the author is revealing to us. Why did anyone believe Joseph? I have no idea, right? They, they could have said, you're full of it, Joseph. You don't, you don't know anything. They could have said that, but, but they believed him. And sometimes I feel like we, you know, I don't know, we, we, we try to believe the meanings that people give to dreams, right? You have a weird dream, we try to give them meaning. Like, you know, you, you went to, uh, you, you have a dream, you went to school in your underwear, right? And then someone gives you the meaning of that dream. Or you, you have a dream where you're just like standing there and all your teeth fall out. And someone tells you the meaning of the dream. Or you say, I, I had a dream where I was in a fight, but I was in slow motion. Or I was chasing or being chased, and I was in slow motion. Okay, how many of you had any one of those dreams before? Yeah? Okay. Let me tell you its meaning. And if I did, you'd believe me. Or at least you'd, you'd like 
fancy that, right? I could tell you a random dream. I could be like, oh, I bet you you dreamed that uh, I had to go preach in Nevada and you had to drive me there. Or I could say anything like that. What's the meaning of the dream? And we could sit there and try to figure it out together, be all mysterious and stuff. And we get all, you know, we, we get fascinated by that. Imagine it back in this civilization when this was like the thing. They didn't have television, they had dreams, right? They didn't, they didn't have Bible, they had dreams. So this is a big deal when someone has a dream and then someone goes, I think this is what it means. And so they latch onto that. Well, in any case, the author skips all those questions about like why they would believe Joseph. It just seems like they believed him. And does it come true? It certainly does. Verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Scumbag, right? All right, so... Both dreams come true just as Joseph said they would. And this is weird. This is a strange parallel between Joseph and another guy in the Bible named Daniel. Daniel also goes to prison and then hears dreams and then interprets them and then, he, you know, things like that. They have an interesting uh, parallel relationship of events. But uh, only Joseph and Daniel ever interpret dreams in the Bible and they do so accurately and they do that in the service of pagan kings who believe in dreams. And in both cases, Joseph and Daniel, they don't claim credit for it. They very much indicate that it is God who reveals the meaning of dreams. Now, that's the end of the chapter. The end of the chapter kind of sucks because that's not the end of the story. The cupbearer forgets about Joseph, and so Joseph will be in prison for an additional two years. So at this point, I guess we're at the 11-year mark, and then he'll be in there for another two years, something like that, right? Well, again, we have to stop there because the, the next part of the story is too long to include here. But our roadmap is very, very easy. All the different twists and turns of this story still drive us to see God's sovereign plan for his people. You've seen it, starting with Abraham all the way till now, that God is sovereignly in charge of everything. And even here with the circumstances of Joseph, there's not a sense that God is like, oh, no. What's going on? He is not panicked. He's not confused. He's not overwhelmed. God is very much in control. And so we have that as our roadmap. We know that God is doing something and we just don't know how we'll see Joseph get out of the situation. We don't know how God will bring, we'll see him through, but we know it'll happen. God is bringing about his own ends. People still have agency and choice and free will. And you see Joseph exercising his agency and choice and free will. And he's doing it obediently. People get to choose whether or not you're on God's side or not. At the end of it, God wins. And you get to choose. Are you on his side or not? Now, if we have that very established roadmap in our minds, then we can see at least these five little observations that I want to point out since we're ending the story here. First is, some, is a little bit of a review on this idea that just because you're a believer doesn't mean your life is going to be easy. It will have suffering. That's, that's just part of life. 
being a believer doesn't mean that you don't suffer. If we get that in our heads, we go like, why would God let this happen to me? We think I'm a, I, I'm a believer in God. I'm a, I'm a, I worship Jesus. I love Jesus. Why would God let this happen to me? And we go, if I'm a believer, God's not supposed to be allowed to let me suffer. He owes me a good life, a convenient one, an easy one, a painless one. We get this idea that that's what it's supposed to be like, and that is not it inst- at, at all. It's true, God's people are blessed. They are blessed with the hope of eternity, a blessed hope. And yes, you, you experience some of that now, but you still exist in the midst of a cursed world and you still live in a cursed body. So there's an already but not yet. Are you blessed? Yeah, you will be for eternity and you are partially right now, but it's like looking in a mirror dimly. Right? You understand love, but you don't fully get it. You, you will someday, though. You have joy. You don't fully have it, but you, you will someday. You understand grace. You don't fully get it, but you will someday. There's this sense of already but not yet. And we're still in a cursed world, and we're still in cursed bodies. And so blessing doesn't mean that you're blessed instead of cursed. It means you are blessed amidst the cursed. You, you are going to experience both. And you're either going to define yourself by the curse or the blessing. You're going to define yourself and you're going to plant your identity either on your suffering or on your salvation. Joseph had to sit there and wonder, how could this happen to me when he went into slavery in prison? He had to wonder that. But while he was there and while he suffered, he also saw that God was with him. And he knew the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Right? I'll be with you. I'll prosper you in whatever you do. He said that to them. And, and God would prosper them in material wealth even as a sign, as an object lesson, a physical lesson to, to prove his credibility that he would deliver on the spiritual promises that he gives to us. Second, Joseph's moral standards, for instance, regarding purity, set him apart from his society. As a slave, he could have been totally justified listening to Potiphar's wife doing what she said. Yet in his heart, he knew society doesn't dictate right and wrong. God does. And he refused to sin against God. As believers, you have to reckon that your moral standard must be set apart from society, not derived from society. It must be set apart from culture, not derived from culture. That's going to invade every aspect of your heart. What you find entertaining, how you celebrate and have fun how you cope with stress, what you say when you're upset, where you get your worldview and your moral principle. Either it is from what the unbelieving world tells you or it is from what God tells you. And anytime you try to blend the two, it's as if you marry into the curse of the Canaanites. It's where you forfeit godliness by contaminating it. Our moral standards must come from the Lord. 
set apart from the world. Third, unbelievers see your faith when you suffer. Unbelievers see your faith when you suffer. The suffering of an unbeliever reveals uh, their trust in themselves. You'll see it. When an unbeliever suffers, they trust in themselves, only in themselves. They don't trust any, anyone else. The suffering of a believer reveals their trust in God. And then that even, that even gets uh, applied to trust in God's people. The thing about, um, about faith is you can't prove your faith when you're successful. When you're, when you're doing really well in life, you can try to display your faith, but people will never know if it's genuine. They'll never know, right? Reduce a person to slavery. Reduce a person to prison and see if he looks for excuses or lashes out, gives up, gets bitter, blames God. Watch what happens when a person is miserable. Then you see the fiber of their faith. See if he still lives obediently to the Lord, refusing to sin against him. See if he's still prayerful. See if he still places hope in God the Savior. See if he still serves with excellence and humility. This is how Potiphar and the prison warden both saw that God was with Joseph. Joseph was suffering and yet remained faithful. His faith was apparent. This is how the baker and the cupbearer saw his faith. Joseph suffered well, and Joseph's suffering was unlike the suffering of unbelievers. His suffering made people see the Lord. I think that's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, in 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says, you know, I was suffering. I had this thing that he calls the thorn in my flesh. And I, I asked God several times, I asked him to remove it, but God said, no. God refused, and then 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, in your weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Take a good look at the people that are, that are in the church, in your discipleship groups and all that stuff, and watch the conversation that happened, because people will either... Show their weakness, show their hardship, show their persecution, show their calamities, or they'll play them down and say, I'm fine. And when they actually show the weaknesses in their lives, God is glorified because there they are confessing and asking for prayer. And now others are encouraged and brought in. There's a trust in God and God's people. Then watch the one that comes in and, and speaks vaguely and says, yeah, I'm going through some stuff. I said some things to this person and it didn't go well. And you can tell there's this protection of the sin, of the shame. That's what they hold on to. There's not a trust of God. There's not a trust in God's people. There's a defensiveness. And no one's encouraged by that. They, everyone just watches and nods their head and say, okay, next person. Your suffering reveals your faith. Telling everyone you're fine reveals nothing. Fourth, 
Obedience doesn't always remove suffering, but it does prepare you for greater blessing. Obedience doesn't always remove suffering, but it does prepare you for greater blessing. Now, we know that God has in mind to do something big with Joseph in 13 years. Until then, slavery and prison. Why? I think because Joseph had to learn humility. This is Joseph at his lowest. He had to learn the meaning and the fragility and the abuse even of power. We say things like power corrupts, and that's mostly true because power has a way of amplifying everything that's already inside. Good good becomes great, bad becomes worse. Right, give someone power, you'll see what's really inside. Uh, just a little while ago, I took a vacation to Disney World, okay? And, uh, and my wife, Christine, she had a coworker who gave us this VIP pass so that we could just go fast pass on every, not even fast pass, we just front of the line for every ride for an entire day. So we were able to do all of the Hollywood Studios Park and then all of the Magic Kingdom Park. We just blasted through everything. It was awesome, right? Now... On the other days, we stood in lines, and it was, it was hot and humid and all that stuff. But then, when we had this VIP pass, that's power. We have this tour guide that's walking us around. He just takes us in front of the line, and all the, everyone else just gets out of the way. And people are taking pictures of us because they think that we're celebrities. <laughs> and so, here we are going to the front of the line, and, and we start joking. We're like, <laughs> look at all these peasants standing in lines, right? I wish the lines were longer. I wish it was hotter. I wish it was raining. Right? That's what we we're doing because the power corrupted. It revealed something inside us, right? We're like joking around about that. There wasn't like, oh man, these poor guys, they have to wait in line. No compassion, none. That's what it revealed in our hearts, right? You know how like they say, you don't know the value of money until you're poor, right? If you grow up rich, do you understand the value of a dollar? I like the way that it's, it's said in uh, one, of the, you know, one of the great movies, uh, Captain America, right? A strong man who has known power all his life will lose respect for that power, but a weak man knows the value of strength and knows compassion. For Joseph, he was morally a, uh, good as a slave and then morally good as a prisoner. This didn't remove or shorten his suffering, but it did teach him humility, and it did teach him how bad it was to be a slave, how bad it is to be a prisoner. It taught him something. It taught him the right kind of rulership. If, you know, to think, if ever I'm in charge, I'm going to do things differently. If you grew up under bad parenting, you resolve in your mind, if I become a parent, I'm going to do better. That's what this did for Joseph. Obedience to God taught him humility, which he needed, especially given his time being dad's favorite son over all the brothers. God was going to get him out of captivity after 13 years, but he had to be prepared. So because he was one of God's people, he had to suffer. But that suffering was to prepare him for greater blessing. Fifth and final, and and very, very quickly. The story of Joseph points to something much greater than Joseph. 
You hear me say it all the time, but all the scriptures, all the Bible points to Jesus, right? I, I say it all the time. And we're going to finish this thought much later. I'm just introducing it now, right? God spent one chapter on the creation of the universe and the world, and he spent one chapter on the creation of man, that's Genesis 2. He spent one chapter on the origin of sin, that's Genesis 3. And yet he puts 14 chapters on the story of Joseph. Why? Because Joseph somehow points to Jesus. We don't see it yet because we're not done with the story, so let's not force it. But Joseph and Jesus both were blameless and yet suffered tremendously, unjustly. And in their suffering, they didn't look for excuses. They didn't lash out. They didn't give up. They didn't get better. They stand as examples for us that at their lowest, they revealed their faith and it pointed people to God. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to realize that even your people, even, even some of the best of your people, the ones that, that do everything right, sometimes still suffer injustice, hard injustice. And you don't owe us an easy life. You don't owe us a convenient, painless life. You have promised us eternity with you, forever and ever, without curse. And so we pray, Lord, that we would walk with dignity through the storms of this life, knowing that you have been faithful to the saints of the past, and so you are faithful now to the saints today. And even though we don't see it, Lord, we know that suffering for the Lord, suffering in godliness, amounts to greater blessing, means something more to you. And so we pray that we would not define ourselves by our suffering, but by our Savior. Thank you for solving the problem of the curse of sin. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to secure for us eternity in heaven with you, with him. We pray that we would trust in that blessed hope and be steady through the trouble of this life. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.